to be a binder in the back by the Brickleys there with your name on it, literally. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I stand in need of your help this morning. Would you please come and assist us, assist me to be faithful to scripture today. I pray that you would Uh, work through weakness and that you would show the greatness of Jesus through a a clay pot this morning. Lord, I I really need your help to to be useful today. So come and and help us now. This is a great story. This is such a great story. I don't want us to miss this. So give give us attentiveness and help us to see your glory here in John chapter 5. Help us to believe in you and have life in your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, you've just heard read about half of John chapter 5. We didn't read the whole chapter, but I will preach the entire chapter. All of it hangs together. 47 verses. We know this to be the case simply by the way that John has arranged his material in this gospel. Uh, Just compare John chapter 5 verse 1 with John chapter 6 verse 1. John chapter 5 verse 1 starts with the two words, after this. And we have the account of the healing at Bethesda and then the interchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And then in chapter 6 verse 1 we read the words, after this this. And that moment comes the feeding of the 5,000. So John chapter 5, although long, is one story. And it's not the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. We're going to get one of the longer ones next week, maybe the longest one next week. So we need to understand this as one story because it is. And so to that end, I want to offer three lessons about following Jesus from Bethesda. Three lessons about following Jesus from Bethesda. Uh, John chapter 5 verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John frequently mentions the Jewish feasts in his gospel as a way of marking the progression and the passing of time in Jesus' three-year ministry. And in every instance, he specifies exactly which uh, feast he's talking about, except for this one. John Calvin thinks it's Pentecost. J.C. Ryle thinks it's the Passover. Don Carson suggests the possibility of the Feast of Tabernacles, and I have no idea. Three great heroes collide on the meaning of a text like that. I just don't know. I don't think it makes a difference, though, because John doesn't refer to the feast again in the rest of the chapter. What does matter is the setting for the story that Jenny read for us, described in verses 2 and 3. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The ESV, the English Standard Version that you have in the seats there, uses a word that we don't often use today to speak of the disabled community. They're called invalids, the infirm, uh, sick, debilitated. We would say disabled. In particular, John mentions in verse 3, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now the pool called Bethesda, was thought to have medicinal effects for those who would enter it. In fact, there's a manuscript tradition that adds to verse 3, which says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And I think it's only an addition. It's not from the most reliable family of manuscripts that the best of the modern translations are based upon. That's why it's relegated to a footnote in the ESV. It's there, but it's probably not something that John wrote. All the same, this is why the disabled individuals are there. They're waiting for their turn to be healed. Um, By the way, Bethesda, that's why so many... Hospitals today take the name Bethesda, place of healing. My mother-in-law used to work at a Bethesda in St. Louis. We read in verse 5 that one man had been an invalid for 38 years. That's almost four decades. If you're old enough, do you remember what you were doing 38 years ago? It was 1975. Captain and Tennille had the favorite song that year, Love Will Keep Us Together. Jaws was in the theaters. My dad was driving an Oldsmobile Cutlass. Gerald Ford was in the White House. Your pastor was two years from being born. (laughs) A long time ago. It's a long time to be debilitated. Interpreters speculate a little bit here, but the man was in all likelihood a, a paraplegic. Probably had no use of his legs. That makes sense of the story here. Stir into that that the average lifespan for a Jewish man in the first century is about 40 years. He's on borrowed time. Most of it's spent without use of his legs. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. A number of things we might observe here. The first is that the man had been disabled before Jesus was even born, right? 38 years. Jesus didn't live to see year 38. No matter what reckoning we take of Jesus' death at age 30 or age 33, either way we date his birth in Bethlehem, this man has been infirm longer than the Son of God has been incarnate. 
And isn't John's language in verse 6 beautiful? Jesus saw him lying there and knew. He knew. Christ knew before his incarnation of the suffering of this man. In fact, God's son was sovereign before his incarnation over the suffering of this man. Exodus chapter 4 verse 11 says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord's not only aware of our sufferings, he's administrating them. And in this case, he's about to ameliorate them completely. Take a look at the exchange between Jesus and the man in verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You feel that? That pain upon pain? J.C. Ryle observes, not a single friend to help him. 38 years. Ryle says, the longer we live on earth, the more we shall find that it is a selfish world. And the sick and the afflicted have few friends. That's true. And yet, what a friend we have in Jesus. We read in verses 7 and 8. Sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and I'm going down another steps in before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, Drop your eyes down to verse 14 because this is an important postscript to the healing that's given there. John 5, 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, lots of interpreters try tirelessly to exonerate Jesus of the force of his language in verse 14 from the implications of what he's saying. Let's not do that. We don't have to help Jesus out here. By telling him sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, on the back end of his suffering... Jesus, it seems, is indicating that sin is indeed what generated his suffering on the front end. Don Carson put it really simply when he said, although Jesus elsewhere insists that a specific, specific ailment is not necessarily the result of some specific sin, we're going to see that in chapter 9, verse 3 with the blind man. It's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. There's nothing that precludes the possibility that some ailments are direct consequence of specific sins. I think he's right. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Remember Paul's words to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 30. That's why some of you are sick and some of you who have fallen asleep. He's talking about the effect of sin on suffering. 
Now, even if you reject that specific connection in this case, the broader truth still holds. Which weighs heavier, your sufferings or your sins? Our sins. In Genesis chapter 3, which came first, our sufferings or our sins? Our sins. What are we primarily? Victims or perpetrators? Perpetrators. What are human beings at their core apart from the grace of God? Sufferers who sin or sinners who suffer? It's the latter. We are sinners who suffer. And here's what's amazing about Jesus. He's surrounded by suffering sinners. And he moves right into all that mess. Right into Bethesda. And he gets to work. Healing. Loving. So here's the first lesson for Jesus followers from Bethesda. Point number one. The multitude of suffering sinners that surround us demands that we keep the law of love at all times. The multitude of suffering sinners that surround us demands that we keep the law of love at all times. Now that's inspiring, I think. It's also overwhelming. It's motivating. But we need to couple it with the second lesson from our story today. So the multitude of suffering sinners that surrounds us demands, like Jesus, that we keep the law of love at all times. However, point number two, conservative Bible believers like us often miss this and we look like Christ-denying ogres when it happens. Conservative Bible believers like us often miss this. And we look like Christ-denying ogres when it happens. You say, well, that's offensive. And I say, not nearly as offensive as the way that the Jews treated Jesus and this man. What goes down in the second half of verse 9 through verse 18? Allow me to remind us. John chapter 5, beginning partway through verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John discloses to us 
the second half of verse 9, that Jesus heals the sick man on the Sabbath. It's a very important detail. And the Jewish leaders get right in the man's face, and they say to him in verse 10, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're referring, of course, to the fourth commandment of ten. Um, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8, which reads in part, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. To which the thoughtful 21st century Bible reader definitely ought to ask, what qualifies as work? It all hinges on that. Well, one author put it this way. In Scripture, work refers to one's customary employment. That's what it means for us today, too. Your job. Or your search for one. But the rabbis of Jesus' day had analyzed the prohibition into 39 classes of work, including taking or carrying anything from one domain to another. So what did Jesus think about this? He hated it. He could hardly stand it. He dials it back here. He doesn't dial it back in Mark 7, verses 8 and 9. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's all this is. It's their tradition. Not only was picking up your sick bed after being miraculously healed not a violation of the Sabbath, Jesus was not in violation of the Sabbath by healing him on it. He was in step with the Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. What was working for Jesus? Doing good, healing, loving. Jewish leaders here are busy straining out the gnat of faulty Sabbath violation while all the while swallowing the camel of selfishness and unbelief. And they're choking. Jesus is ready. He is spring-loaded to love even on the Sabbath. There's so much need pressing in all around him. There's grief pain and distress pressing in here. There is wickedness and depravity and evil pressing in here. And he dives headfirst into the broken, fallen mess of Bethesda, suffering and sinning, and he starts loving one man. And just like our Lord The multitude of suffering sinners that surrounds us demands that we keep the law of love at all times, even when it's inconvenient, especially when it's inconvenient, particularly when it might be costly. That's what love does. 
But conservative Bible believers often miss this. And we look like Christ-denying ogres when it happens. When we blow it, when we blow an opportunity to love, people notice it. They don't see our doctrine. They see our life. And our life shows our doctrine. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love. And the reverse is twice as true. If you do not love, no one will know that you're my disciple. No one's going to know. They will draw the conclusion that we are simply hypocrites or worse. And they'll be right. Now, one of the more presenting issues for conservative Bible believers in Jesus' day was the controversy over Sabbath keeping. You can tell this was really on the front burner of the Jewish leaders of his day. That is not the dominant controversy of the present day. So we need to discern where our witness is weak here on this point. What clear scriptural commands today are we in similar danger of losing our sense of proportion or balance on? Where are we tempted today to speak the truth minus love? To be tough on an issue, but not all kinds of tender along with the tough. To demand justice, but to leave off mercy. The multitude of suffering sinners that surround us demands that we keep the law of love at all times. Conservative Bible believers like us often miss this, and we look like Christ-denying ogres when it happens. Well, we've seen the soaring standard of love set by the Savior, and we feel the uncomfortable reality of our indifference and our apathy in our hearts towards suffering sinners, which at the end of the day is hostility to Christ himself. What's the solution? What's the remedy for us? Is there a remedy for us? There is. Point number three. The remedy, you got to supply a word here, the remedy is to remember that Jesus is the person behind every page of Scripture. He beckons us to believe it and have life in his name. The remedy is to remember that Jesus is the person behind every page of Scripture. He beckons us to believe it and have life in his name. Now, as yet, we have not heard the full response of Jesus to the unlove of the Jewish leaders. Now we're ready for it. We're positioned for it. Don't forget, the rest of the chapter, from verse 18 to 47, is all a single response from Jesus to the conservative Bible believers of his day. Verse 18, sorry, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of 
The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father is doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, is also, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Break off the reading right there just because I'm not sure I can read the whole thing at once. The multitude of suffering sinners that surround us demands that we keep the law of love at all times. We often miss this, so the remedy is first of all to believe and have life in his name. Two general observations. One is related to this paragraph and one is related to the one I'm going to read in just a moment. Here's the first observation application for verses 18 to 29. Live your life in order to display just how spectacular Jesus really is. Live your life in order to display just how spectacular Jesus really is. Do you see in these verses how profoundly Christ-centered God himself is? And therefore, how Christ-centered we are invited to be? Verse 20, the Father loves the Son, And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 22. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And then with the great history culminating promise starting in verse 26. For as the father has life in himself so he is granted The Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This future snapshot of resurrection in verses 28 and 29 is given a little eeny teeny preview in verse 8 of our story Jesus said to him get up take up your bed and walk it's going to happen friends those who are in the tombs Leslie Stenlin 
at Fairview Cemetery. Lou Bryce, Gordon Johnson at Union, south of town. They're going to hear his voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Why doesn't verse 29 say, those who believe and those who disbelieve? Why not just stick with the category of faith? Isn't the gospel believe? Believe in Jesus? Yes, of course it is. But that just begs the question, what is believe? What's it mean to believe? What's faith? If you've been with us in our study so far in John's gospel, you know what faith is. Faith is trust that transforms you from the outside in, from the inside out. Faith is trust that transforms you, so much so that Jesus can speak of those who have done good as the recipients of his grace at the resurrection of the dead and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, those who have not had faith in the Son. What's belief? It's trust that transforms you. So the first application is live your life in order to display just how spectacular Jesus really is. And here's the second application. The star witness to the person of Jesus Christ is the pages of Holy Scripture. The star witness to the person of Jesus Christ is the pages of Holy Scripture. Let's pick this up in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, And I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. And here comes one of the witnesses. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Jesus had several eyewitnesses to his majesty. One of them was John the Baptist. He was a witness to the light. He came to bear witness about Jesus. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish are the very works that I am now doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So another witness to the majesty of Jesus is his own works, his signs, like one of the ones we just saw or the one that Guy shared for us last week. They testify to the magnificence of Jesus Christ, but greater still, because we don't have John the Baptist anymore and we don't have the miraculous ministry of John in front of us anymore or of, of Jesus in front of us anymore, but we do have something else. All of us on our laps today The star witness to the person of Jesus Christ is the pages of Holy Scripture. Listen one last time to how Jesus says it. Um, 
Well, we'll start in verse 37. I haven't read it yet. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders in the first century. His language is not just provocative, it's inflammatory. He's addressing professional Old Testament scholars, and he says of God, His voice you have never heard. I know you don't have the love of God within you. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. He wrote of me, you do not believe his writings. Really? It's mind-boggling, the charges that he is leveling against these Old Testament experts. When Jesus says in verse 46 that Moses wrote of me, don't think so much of a specific chapter or verse in the Old Testament, although there are those. Jesus' words are wonderfully nondescript at this point, very wide-ranging. It's all purpose. Moses wrote of me. Where? Everywhere. Every story whispers his name. So much so that in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus speaks of himself as Jacob's ladder. Every story whispers his name. So much so that John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus speaks of himself as the temple of God's people and the place of true worship in John chapter 4. Every story whispers his name, so much so that John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus compares himself to a serpent who was lifted up in the wilderness by Moses as he himself is lifted up upon the cross that all might look to him and be saved. Moses wrote of me. Where? Every story whispers his name. So my closing exhortation for us is this. The multitude of suffering sinners that surrounds us demands that we keep the law of love at all times. It's going to wreck your schedule. It's going to mess up your budget. It's going to wreck your family dynamic and your plans this week. Count on it. And that's why conservative Bible believers like us often miss this. And we have no idea what we look like to an unbelieving world when we miss it. We look like Pharisees. We look like the Jewish leaders. So we're called to live our lives in order to display just how spectacular he really is. But if we're going to display him, we got to see him. 
And this is where he is today. He's here in the pages that point to the person. So let's hear their testimony. The hands down star witness to the person of Jesus Christ on November 17th, 2013 is the Bible. Don't say you love Jesus but not the Bible. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. So let's hear their testimony and believe their testimony. Come to Jesus and have life in the word of God. Do you need a mid-course correction with him tomorrow morning? Some new discipline to develop to get yourself back in the word. Do it. Finally, if you're with us today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. You just need to know who you are in this story. You are the disabled man in verse 5. And try as you may, you are unable to scratch and to claw your way to healing. You have no hope apart from Jesus who wants to be your friend and your savior and your healer and your king. Apart from God's grace in Christ toward you, there is no hope at your Bethesda. And he's asking you right now, through me, do you want to be healed? If so, put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Turn from your sin. Believe the Savior and have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for stopping by Bethesda. I can't wait to meet that man in heaven. (laughs) 38 years. You healed him with a word. Lord Jesus, would you heal us in this room? Would you take those of us who are disabled spiritually, unable, unwilling to come to you with our own wills which are fast bound in sin and nature's night. May thine eye diffuse a quickening ray. May someone wake right now. May the dungeon flame with light. May chains fall off and hearts get free and rise and go forth and follow thee. And those of us who have been freed and profess faith in you, please help us to live that faith. Please help us to walk in your steps. Please draw us into Bethesda this week. Sick, suffering sinners all around us. And may we tell the story of our own release and our own healing. In Jesus' name, amen.